Good to see everyone this morning. That was a great <clears throat> scripture that Craig read for us. It is just not the correct one. Uh, it's the one that's in the uh, order of worship, but it should be Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, as we've been talking about in the last uh, couple of Sundays. So I hope you'll have your Bibles open uh, to that place. Uh, and, uh, and don't forget that other one either, Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. Um, great scripture and very, very uh, important. Uh, I want to mention about um, this evening at 6, when we have our evening service over in the uh, Hartley House, uh, that our guest speaker for the evening is Ben Snyder. And I know you'll want to come and uh, encourage Ben and hear what he has to say. And we appreciate all the brothers who are uh, taking on these assignments and willing to speak and uh, give us an opportunity to hear what they have to say. We look forward to that tonight. And uh, last Sunday we announced about um, uh, Jake Rouse and uh, Kara Marker being baptized, but they weren't here. So I want to say that again and uh, let both of them know how thankful we are for them, how proud we are of them, uh, and how grateful we are for all the influences from their parents and from this church and from those who work particularly with the young people and uh, helping them to come to this point of decision. Love you guys, and we appreciate you so much. It was 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus that Peter stood up to proclaim his death, burial, and resurrection for the very first time. And when he did so, he preached that Jesus had been crucified and, and buried and then raised from the dead. And then he made this great statement in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. He said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And those people who heard that, those lost people, believed what he said and they were convicted of it. The Bible says they were cut to the heart. And they asked the most important question in the world, what shall we do? And Peter told them what to do. He told them to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins but he didn't just tell them what to do he also made them a great promise and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in other words when they believed what Peter was telling them and when they repented and were baptized then they would receive that wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit they would receive something that was not available to people in the Old Testament even though they were the people of Israel God's people God had not promised to give all Israelites the, uh, the Holy Spirit. Now, people like judges and kings and prophets would have the Holy Spirit come upon them, maybe temporarily or maybe more than temporarily, but the average Israelite, if you will, had no promise of that, no expectation of that. Although the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, held out that hope. And that hope is what was proclaimed on the day of Pentecost of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And yet, Peter says, when we turn to Christ through repentance and baptism, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that gift is nothing less than the Spirit himself. Now, I want you to notice that I said himself and not itself. We have a hard time getting our minds around the idea of the Holy Spirit, and understandably so. And because of that, we tend to speak of the Spirit as an it, and yet the Bible does not. The Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit as a person, 
the Spirit is a divine person, just as God the Father is a divine person and Jesus the Son is a divine person. Uh, all three of them together make up what we sometimes refer to as the Godhead, by which uh, is simply a term by which we mean the fullness of the nature of God. Now, this is something that we just have to believe. I remember in a Bible class one time a number of years ago, a young man by the name of Brennan McGee, who a lot of you know, uh, we were talking about this and how there are three persons in one, that there's not three gods, there's just one God, but existing in three persons. And, and Brennan looked up and he made the comment, he said, this makes my head hurt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I get that, I understand that. This is not a concept that we will ever be able to understand. But it is a concept that we can believe. And we shouldn't be surprised that we can't understand it. This is getting to the very depths of the nature of God. And you and I simply do not have the capacity to grasp that. We only have the capacity to believe it. And that's what Scripture calls on us to do, is to believe it. Not that there are three gods, but one God consisting in three persons. Not that God that sometimes exists in three different forms, but three persons in one, what we sometimes refer to as the Trinity, although that's not a Bible word, it is a Bible concept, that there are three persons making up the one God. The Spirit is not an impersonal force like electricity. The Spirit is not uh, some kind of an emotion like when someone tells you to lift your spirits. The Spirit is not uh, a, uh, an attitude of a, of a group. It's when we talk about school spirit or the spirit of a, any, any group. And the Spirit is not a ghost in spite of the unfortunate translation of the King James Version. The Spirit is not a ghost. The Spirit is a person. Scripture says that the Spirit speaks, the Spirit teaches, the Spirit convicts, the Spirit uh, inspires, the Spirit gives aid, the Spirit strengthens and does a host of other things, all of which are characteristic of personality, not of an inanimate object or of an impersonal force. When Peter made that great promise on the day of Pentecost, he was promising nothing less than God personally living in each believer. That is the amazing truth that he was speaking, that God will come to live in each believer we know that he was talking about the gift of the Spirit personally to each one because in Acts 5, in verse 32, he says, We are witnesses of these things, talking about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Whom God has given. It isn't some gift relating to the Spirit. It is the Spirit. And so when we have the Holy Spirit within us, it is nothing less than God himself living within us. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he emphasized that in 1 Corinthians 3.16, that the Spirit lives in the church collectively. He said, do you not know that uh, you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? And that you is plural. So he's talking about the whole church. So as we sit here today, we can say the same thing, that we are the temple of God's Spirit, and God's Spirit dwells in us and dwells among us. But then on a personal level, in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, he says that the Spirit inhabits each Christian individually. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit 
within you which you have from God. Isn't that an amazing thought? That you and I, as, as weak as we are and as sinful as we are, because we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, that we have God's Spirit living within us. The day that you were baptized into Christ, the Spirit came to live within you. And if you haven't yet been baptized into Christ, the promise is that when you are, that God's Spirit will come to live within you. An amazing thought that God himself will take up residence within you. Now that raises an important question. Why? Why do we have the Holy Spirit within us? What does the Spirit do? Well, we're looking at Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6, where Paul is talking about the unity of the church and encouraging the church to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he says that there is uh, one body and one Spirit, just as there is one hope to which you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. So in the context of the book of Ephesians, the purpose of the function, and the function of the Holy Spirit is the unifying of the church. That's the main thing that Paul emphasizes, the unifying of the church. In fact, chapter 4 and verse 4, when he talks about one body and one spirit, why is there one body? Because there is one spirit. And because that one spirit dwells within all uh, who are followers of uh, Jesus. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, that promise was made to those Jews on the day of Pentecost. To repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later, that same promise was made, or the gift was given in Acts 10, to a group of Gentiles, and Peter preached the gospel to them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And Peter made the statement, who can withhold uh, baptism from these, seeing that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have at the beginning? The Spirit came to them just as on us at the beginning, he says. Same for the Gentiles as it was for the Jews. And that's his point, his primary point in the book of Ephesians, is that that Holy Spirit, that one Holy Spirit, inhabits both Jews and Gentiles. And so in chapter 1 of Ephesians, in verses 13, uh, 13 and 14, he says, In him also, when you, uh, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we obtain possession of it. The Spirit within us is a kind of down payment of what God is going to do for us in eternity. The Spirit is a guarantee that God has in store for us an inheritance that is beyond our comprehension. If you think we can't comprehend the Spirit living within us, we surely can't comprehend everything that God has in store for us. When we stand in His presence, unhindered by the flesh, the Spirit is that kind of down payment. In chapter 2 and verse 18, Paul says, For through him we both, talking about Jews and Gentiles, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then in verse 22, he says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The Spirit is building both Jews and Gentiles together into that dwelling place for God. 
You see, no matter who we are, there is one spirit. There's one spirit for Jews and Gentiles. There's one spirit for Americans and Ukrainians. There's one spirit for Chinese and Brazilians. There's one spirit for black people and brown people and white people and every other kind of people. There's only one spirit, and that one spirit builds us all together into a dwelling place for God. That's the work of the Spirit. That's one of the things that Jesus came to accomplish. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, Paul says this, In one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. We were all baptized into one body by the one Spirit, and we were all made to participate in that one spirit as a result. So the spirit unifies the church. The spirit gives us unity with each other as we're here today. The spirit gives us unity with people who are in other parts of the world who hold the same faith that we do. The spirit builds the unity of the church. Well, you might wonder what else does the spirit do? And the answer is there are a lot of things and we won't take time to talk about all of them today, but one of the things that the Spirit does that's so important to us is the Spirit inspires Scripture. That's why we have the Scriptures, the Word of God. Because as Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1 and verse 21, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were moved by the Holy Spirit so that what they said, what they wrote, turned out not to be simply their words, but the words of God, the words that the Spirit wanted them to speak. And that's why in Ephesians 6 and verse 17, Paul can say that we as believers need to take for our defense and for our offense the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's what the Spirit uses to teach us, to guide us, to purify us, to correct us, to give us training in righteousness. Now on a more personal level, the Spirit intercedes for us in prayer. This is one of my favorite realities about the Spirit, is that Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I think we've all been there. I think we've all had those moments in our lives when something was hurting us so deeply or confusing us so badly or perplexing us so greatly that we didn't even know how to pray about it. We wanted to pray about it. We knew we needed to pray about it, but we didn't know what to say. We don't know what to ask for. There are a lot of times we don't know what to ask for. We don't know what to, whether to ask God to make someone well or relieve them of their suffering. We don't know what to ask God for. We don't have the wisdom to know what to ask God for. It's okay. Because at those moments when we don't know what to ask for, the Spirit does. And the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. We don't know what's going on. We don't hear it. We don't sense the Spirit's involvement. But the Spirit is, if you will, translating those desires of our innermost being to God the Father 
And God knows what is the mind of the Spirit, Scripture says. The Spirit intercedes for us. The Spirit also strengthens us. In Ephesians 3 and verse 16, Paul prayed that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. You ever need strength? You ever, you ever need power? You ever, ever need help just to make it through another day? The Spirit strengthens us. You ever need strength to overcome sin and temptation? The Spirit provides that. In Romans 8 and verse 13, Paul said, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice that. Not if you put to death the deeds of the body, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Listen, there's some things you and I can't conquer on our own. There are some things we just can't do for ourselves. We're, we're too weak. There are some things that would overpower us were it not for the power that God places within us through the Holy Spirit. And if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, Paul says, we will live. In fact, you can say this, it is the presence of the Spirit within us that makes us Christian. You want to know one of the biggest differences between Christians and non-Christians? It's not that we're better than people who aren't in Christ. We ought to be living better lives, but we're not better people. It's not that we're smarter. It's not that we're any more intelligent or anything of that nature. But it's the fact that God's Spirit is within us. That's what sets us apart. God has given us that Spirit as a guarantee. Paul says in Romans 8, 9, and 10, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, uh, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So if the Spirit is in you, you're alive. If the Spirit is not in you, you're dead. You may not know it. If the Spirit of God's not in you, you don't have that eternal life that will lead you on into the presence of God in eternity. But if, you, if you're in Christ, then you have that Spirit giving life within you. Now this is important, folks, because sadly, for a long time in the church, we made two serious errors where the Spirit was concerned. Two serious errors about the Holy Spirit, both of them because we were trying to avoid making errors about the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we made two. The first one is, rather than rejoicing in the Spirit's presence and consciously relying on the Spirit's power to help us, we've gotten embroiled in debates about what the Spirit does and does not do. We've spent way too much time talking about that. When I first became a Christian, that was one of the big issues raging in the church, was whether or not the Spirit dwells in us and how the Spirit dwells in us and what does the Spirit do and what does the Spirit not do. And people were arguing with one another about that and, and destroying the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace that Paul talks about. Ironic, isn't it? You see how Satan gets inside us and works? to pervert the purposes of God. 
Now, why were we doing that? The reason was because it was largely a reaction to Neo-Pentecostalism. You had folks who were claiming miraculous gifts that Scripture indicates aren't there anymore, but they were claiming them. And so some folks were then were trying to, to go to the opposite extreme and basically just kind of wring the supernatural completely out of our faith. And trying so, trying so hard to get rid of any idea of the miraculous that you got the idea that the Holy Spirit had somehow retired or died or something and just wasn't here doing anything anymore. When I first started preaching, you had to be careful what you said about the Spirit because people were on edge about it. Isn't that sad? People were on edge about the subject of the Spirit. Instead of rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, People were worried, did you say the right thing? And if you didn't say it just in a certain way? We got embroiled in that kind of, of thing. And in an effort to deny the miraculous today, some went so far as to deny the Spirit's presence within us at all. I've heard people say that. The Holy Spirit's not really in you. The Holy Spirit's in Scripture. So if you learn Scripture, then the Spirit's in you. If you don't learn Scripture, the Spirit's not in you. That's sad. Because Scripture says the Spirit is in us. And we shouldn't debate that. We should just rejoice in it. Others got embroiled in those discussions about how the Spirit dwells in us and ended up actually denying that the Spirit really is in us. And based on Romans 8, that's scary. Because Paul said in Romans 8, if the Spirit of God is not in you, you don't belong to Him. So if those people were right, and what they were saying about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's not really in us, and we don't belong to God. That was a serious error. The other error that we made for a long time was we just ignored the subject of the Spirit. As I mentioned earlier, the subject of the Spirit is not easy to understand. It's difficult to understand, impossible really, the nature of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's just don't talk about it. Let's don't have classes about it. Let's don't have sermons about it. Let's just don't discuss the Spirit at all. Worse yet, some came up with rationalistic explanations that are not taught in Scripture. That goes back all the way to the second century. You had, you had what was called modalism where people said, well, there's not three beings, three persons in the Godhead. There's God just changes forms. He's God the Father when he was creating the world, and then he was God the Son and came to earth and died on the cross, and now he's God the Holy Spirit and he's here with us in different forms. And described him as some kind of shapeshifter. He just kind of takes different forms at different times. Folks, that's heresy. That's heresy. And we tried to illustrate it by saying, well, the Holy Spirit's like, like water, you know, if, if you have just water, it's, it's liquid. If you boil it, it becomes steam. If you freeze it, it becomes ice. That's a big error because it, it's not all three at one time. Try putting a little steam in your iced tea, seeing how you like that. That doesn't work. And that's not what Scripture says. How could Jesus, the Son, be on earth praying to the Father and say, I will send the Holy Spirit? If it's just one being. Was Jesus talking to himself? No. We came up with those rationalistic explanations because we weren't sure what to say about the Spirit. And rather than try to say anything, we just didn't say much. And so for the most part, we just ignored 
the Spirit. I've talked to a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians over the years who were never told about the Holy Spirit. Even when they were taught the gospel, even when they were baptized into Christ, nobody ever told them about the Holy Spirit. I've seen people baptized where they, the person baptizing was I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but would not say what Peter says in Acts 2 and verse 38. I baptize you for the forgiveness of your sins, but wouldn't go ahead and say, and you'll receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. People just weren't taught about the Spirit. And as a result, we've had a lot of folks who've had a stunted spirituality. No spiritual vitality, feelings of failure and helplessness all the time, not realizing the Spirit's presence to strengthen and help, and so practicing a form of minimalist Christianity. What's the least I need to do to stay out of hell? How sad that is. And folks, it stunted our evangelism too. What do you say to somebody who's caught up in some kind of addiction? Do you just say, listen, here, here's the answer to that. Just get baptized and do better. They're in the same boat. If they don't know that the God's spirit is in them to strengthen them, to give them the ability to overcome, we need to be telling people that. You need to become a Christian. Okay, you're struggling with this. You're in the throes of sin. Something's got hold of your life. You know, what can break that is God's Holy Spirit. And when you turn to Christ, then God's Spirit will come to live within you. And you can overcome that, whatever it is. That's the gospel. That's the good news. We've been afraid to say it. See, the Holy Spirit is not just about a doctrine and whether or not we have the right view. It's about spiritual life. It's about God living within us. And it's about doing him doing for us all the things that Scripture says he wants to do for us. That God will do for us through his Spirit. When Paul said there is one Spirit, he knew that we're all in the same boat. Jews and Gentiles, everybody on the face of the earth, we all need the same thing. And what we need is not just a new set of instructions. For a long time, the gospel got presented that way. You had the old law, and then you got the new law. You had this set of rules, but now they don't count anymore. Here's a new set of rules. Live by those. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for our sins to break the power of sin. And that through the power of his blood, we are redeemed from sin. And God's spirit comes to live within us, to strengthen us, and enable us to be what God wants us to be. We have the presence of God within us to be able to live by the instructions that God gives. We need a Savior. And when we respond in faith to that Savior by repenting and being baptized, then we receive the greatest gift of all. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God living within us. God strengthening us. God making us able to be what he wants us to be. There is one body. There is one spirit. And if you're ready to be part of that one body and have that one spirit living in you, do what Peter told those folks on Pentecost. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together and sing.